The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're discussing modern families and fertility care for the LGBTQ community. For that, we've invited Dr. Daniel Kaser, who serves as the director of third-party and LGBTQ team at Reproductive Medicine Associates of Northern California in San Francisco. He went to medical school at Dartmouth and completed his OBGYN residency at Harvard Medical School in the Brigham and Women's Mass General Program. He stayed at Brigham and Women's for his REI fellowship, after which he joined RMA New Jersey. He was the director of third-party reproduction there for three years before moving to his current position in San Francisco. He has been awarded funding from the NIH and the Foundation for Embryonic Competence for his research, and he has received numerous awards, including the ASRM Scientific Prize Paper in 2016 and the 2017 SRBT Clinical Science Award. Dr. Kaser serves on the editorial board for Fertility and Sterility and is an ad hoc reviewer for several other journals, and he has also previously worked as a consultant for the WHO as a member of the Expert Working Group for Assisted Reproductive Technologies. Dr. Kaser, welcome to FertilityPod, and thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Andres. Uh, good to be with you. Tell us a little bit about what you do, what options are there for same-sex male and female couples. Absolutely. So, you know, more and more we're, we're seeing male couples and female couples come to fertility clinics to help start or grow their family. And in particular in Northern California, specifically in San Francisco, a relatively large group of patients are seeking this type of care. And the options depend on, you know, individual circumstances in terms of if it is an, you know, individual man or a gay male couple or uh, a single woman um, choosing to be a mother by choice or a female or lesbian couple uh, wanting to, you know, undergo insemination or co-IVF or reciprocal IVF treatment. So a lot of it is it's really specific to, you know, the given circumstances um, for the individual or for the couple. I would say that for single women and, and for lesbian couples, a common starting point, um, aside from general fertility testing related to ovarian reserve and routine prenatal screening, like infectious disease testing and genetic carrier testing, a good starting point for a lot of these couples are uh, is you know donor insemination, um, and in choosing a sperm donor, lesbian couples have several different options. Most end up working with anonymous sperm donors through a private sperm bank, um, and there are a number of, of banks that are available throughout the United States. And in selecting a donor. 
the couple has access to what amounts to be a profile of demographic information, along with a three-generation family history, a genetic profile, uh, and then sometimes, depending on the bank, would have pictures as an adult uh, and then also as a baby. And then more and more, some banks are including audio clips or even video clips. And this is a popular choice in choosing a sperm donor because you can compare and contrast options and they're immediately available. The sperm can be shipped the very next day and sent to the, the clinic to be used for treatment purposes. So if anyone at the bank, there are you know hundreds, if not thousands of, of sperm donors available and you can filter the donor based on you know certain criteria, whether that's ethnicity or a particular genetic trait, or if they've you know had donations that have led to to successful pregnancies and children. So depending on a, a couple's priorities, they can kind of rank order and and compare and contrast different different donors. And my team helps refine you know that match and confirm along with genetic counselors that clinically that's an appropriate match for them. And then also helps educate them about some of the issues related to quote-unquote, donor anonymity in the 21st century. Um, and I say quote-unquote because the field has moved you know, further and further away from calling this type of donor an anonymous sperm donor or an anonymous egg donor in that with direct-to-consumer genetic testing like 23andMe or you know, even Facebook, there are ways to track down donors and there are ways that donor half-siblings can track down one another. And so really the, the preferred kind of terminology for this and how, how we discuss this with patients is that it's a not known sperm donor or a currently unknown sperm donor, uh, because who's to say what the future holds in terms of if that donor is going to reach out to you or your child is going to reach, reach out to the donor or and so we highlight some of these issues and discuss if a couple has concerns about that. There are other paths to find a sperm donor, um, also through a, a sperm bank, where you can match with what's called an open identity or an identity release sperm donor. And the concept here is that for really the first 18 years of the child's life, that the contact information is blinded to the sperm donor. However, with these identity release donors, if the child, specifically when he or she becomes 18 years of age, is interested in learning more about the donor, then then they can reach out to the sperm bank and that anonymity is broken, with obviously with the donor's consent. Um, the other clinically relevant point about this is sometimes for uh, a child that becomes ill. Um, that's the other occasion that one of these identity release donors can, that the blinding can be unblinded um, and the parents can actually reach out to the sperm bank and then have access to the, the sperm donor and either let, you know, solicit additional family history or medical information from the donor, you know, even potentially, you know, ask if he would be willing to undergo some type of tissue donation, like a bone marrow transplant, if you, if we were an appropriate match, for example. That I think about that identity release donor as kind of an intermediate between a known and unknown sperm donor, and the the known sperm donor um, is becoming more and more 
common among um, female couples in, you know, either a male friend or a sibling of partner who is not, not going to be providing the egg for the treatment to undergo the medical screening and genetic testing and uh, mental health screening and counseling to provide sperm for an individual or couple. And we see more and more folks choosing this path because nowadays people are, are creating families in new and perhaps once thought to be unconventional ways. And more often we're seeing donors want to be involved in the in the rearing of the child and occasionally, you know, not have parental rights, but rather be involved in the child's life in some manner. And so, you know, I, I think that is still probably the least common of choices, but the group that is most rapidly changing and we're seeing more and more people request to use a, a, a directed or known sperm donor. So, you know, for for female couples, the really the the very first choice in in how to pursue treatment um, is like, you know, where is this firm coming from, uh, whether through a bank or some known individual? And then who who is providing the egg and who is carrying the pregnancy? And some patients, you know, come into clinic and they know immediately what their plan is, for example. And one woman in a couple may immediately, like in, in all her life, may say, you know, I've always wanted to be a mother. I've always wanted to be pregnant. And then her partner may have expressed no interest whatsoever in, in being pregnant, but wants to be a parent. Alternatively, you know, I have, I have patients where both patient and partner want to be pregnant at different times, but to use the same sperm donor. I think an important clinical point in that setting is to make sure that both patient and partner undergo genetic carrier testing and uh, at the time of sperm donor selection. And then there is also a unique opportunity with female couples where one woman can provide the egg, the embryos can then be created in the laboratory with the sperm, um, and the resulting embryo can then be implanted in her partner's uterus, uh, which has a number of different names, either co-IVF or reciprocal IVF or shared maternity. And then we, we sometimes have people, you know, create embryos and the, the first child is carried by one patient and then the second child is, is carried by her partner as, as a recipient. So female couples, frankly, by, by virtue of, of anatomy and just biology, have really a tremendous wide range of options. So I think it's important in counseling these patients that um, you know, while there are a lot of options available, some like IVF or co-IVF may have a more direct path to becoming pregnant and, and establishing an ongoing pregnancy, um, but also involve you know, some additional steps as well. Thanks. That's what a great overview of, of options for same-sex female couples. What can you tell us about options for same-sex male couples or single men? For gay male couples and men who are are choosing to become single fathers by choice, which is, you know, we're seeing more and more commonly nowadays. Really, these couples and individuals need both an egg donor and a gestational carrier or surrogate. So our team is involved in, in helping 
navigate this path for them um, and discuss the various options in terms of who is providing the egg, whether the egg is, you know, from a, a woman going through a live egg donation or fresh egg donation or coming from a frozen egg bank, which is uh, a sperm donor would. Uh, and then also identifying and screening a gestational carrier for the second half of an IVF cycle in transferring the embryo and pregnancy. So most, most guys don't know an egg donor that they would necessarily feel comfortable asking or working with to, to provide the egg uh, for, for egg donation. So often men will choose an anonymous egg donor either through a clinic or an agency or a frozen egg bank. The details of, of selecting an egg donor are not unique to, you know, male, male couples, um, for example, and, and really apply to, you know, anyone who would be working with an egg donor. The path to selecting an egg donor, you know, if it's a, a frozen egg bank, it's, it's truly very similar to choosing a sperm donor on, online in that you can see adult pictures and often baby pictures and then also see demographic information and again through generation family history and and any genetic carrier testing that she would have done in um, working with an agency or clinic there is an opportunity to meet that donor and you know become become known and structure this as a directed egg donation and similar to a, a known donor for sperm, a known egg donor, um, once known, you know, legal contracts are similarly needed to establish kind of parental rights and, and obligations. But particularly for male couples, um, is increasingly a popular option in that they want to know, they want to exchange contact information with the, the egg donor. They want to, you know, have future contact, whether that's, you know, holiday cards or sharing baby photos or, um, you know, peripherally being involved in, in the child's life. For my own husband and, and I, this was an important, important um, point for us and that we, we wanted to work um, with a, a, a directed or a known egg donor. Uh, my husband, Dana, and I have uh, a, a son named Finn through egg donation and surrogacy. And so I'm in a unique position where I, you know, meet with couples on, on a truly a daily basis to talk to them about their options of, of egg donation and surrogacy. My husband and I, we, we um, were invested in, in, in knowing the egg donor um, really for two reasons. The first reason was to, uh, frankly, to thank her. That was important to us because we recognize what a tremendous gift that she was providing to us and to our family. And then second, in case our kids in the future wanted to be in contact with, with her, um, whether it was due to some medical issue or, or frankly, just knowing, knowing her personally, or, you know, having, having more details about, you know, her interests or background we wanted to protect that option um, for kind of future contact and in, in um, down the down the line if if our if our kids express an interest in that.
So for us, we, we ended up working with an egg donor um, that became known to us through the clinic. And we met her and her partner and um, immediately hit it off. And, and, you know, to be able to share that with my kids, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It, it does add some additional steps in terms of legal contracts and, and coordinating a, a, a fresh egg donation cycle. But the other advantage to that is that, you know, typically in with a, a fresh egg donor, you know, on average would get anywhere between 18 and 22 eggs. So particularly when doing a split insemination where half of the eggs or some proportion of the eggs would be fertilized with one guy's sperm and the other proportion with the other guy's sperm to create what amounts to be half sibling embryos, that that can be advantageous um, just based on the like expected attrition rates that you see in the IVF laboratory and expected, you know, success rates as compared to a more limited cohort of, of eggs um, from a frozen egg bank, where again, you might get five to eight eggs, uh, which may be sufficient for, you know, one or two embryos. But if multiple kids were planned or a split insemination were planned, um, you know, often that would fall short. The while uh, an egg bank, I have seen some some male couples purchase multiple groups of eggs. They really like an egg donor, and instead of purchasing one cohort of eggs, they purchase two, or they, you know, I've even seen three or four cohorts of eggs, and then they split them up to fertilize them with both of their sperm. And some egg banks uh, allow you to put a group of eggs on reserve or hold, and you can can basically purchase the the first right of refusal to any sibling eggs from that same donor, and um, so more banks are offering that that option as well. So I think in counseling male couples and and couples, um, you know, finding an egg donor, um, there are various options that are are out there, and I think it depends really on the clinical plan in terms of how many sperm sources there are um, and then how many kids um, they want. And then also how, how important, you know, having future contact with, with a, uh, an egg donor is um, to, to the couple. And then in selecting a gestational carrier, again, most, like most couples would not know uh, someone in their immediate peer group. And sometimes Either a sibling or um, you know a friend might might have offered. Uh, uh, more often than not, though, men are working with gestational carrier agencies, where the agency helps find and identify a, a potential carrier and collates all of her prior medical records, and then the clinical team reviews her prior medical and obstetric history, signs off on you know, this is an appropriate match. Um, and then does the, any remaining screening that's needed, such as a saline sonogram or some clinics do like a, a mock cycle or uterine preparation cycle. Tell us a little bit about the legal aspect of gestational surrogacy for these patients. Who provides that legal support? Is it the agency itself or? Some agencies um, provide that that legal team in-house and then others 
refer it out to kind of independent lawyers. Critically important to to work with someone who has a background and specialty in reproductive law. And frankly, some of the legal complexities of parenting through egg donation and surrogacy, in particular with regard to where the gestational surrogate resides and lives and is um, planning to deliver the child. Um, Surrogacy law, at least in the United States, is very patchwork in that surrogacy is not legal in in all states in the, the U.S. And in certain states where it is legal, states like California, New Jersey, um, now New York just recently, Connecticut, um, Texas, Nevada, for example, all have very favorable surrogacy law protecting not only the surrogate's rights, but also the intended parent's rights. And a common question from, from couples going through surrogacy is, how how that legal parentage is established and different states do it in different manners. Um, but really the most progressive and inclusive that allow surrogacy, allow what's called a pre-birth order, where the intended parents, the surrogate and her partner on the file, what amounts to be a court order, typically in the second trimester of pregnancy, that establishes the intended parents as the legal parents of the child. Um, for really for all decision making, and then you know upon upon delivery, the child is legally the child of the intended parents. Other states that have kind of more intermediate surrogacy law offer post birth orders, which functionally are equivalent to a pre birth order. But this is the court order cannot be filed until after delivery, uh, as the name would suggest. And it's typically done within the first 48 or 72 hours after delivery. And so the concern there, you know, among among intended parents is, well, what if the gestational carrier changes her mind? And I think that's a very common anxiety for intended parents, but frankly is such a rare rare situation based on how we screen and identify and counsel gestational carriers, similar to, you hear this, frankly, more with adoption. For example, the birth mother um, doesn't, you know, she's changed her mind last minute and and wants to keep, keep her baby. I think that highlights, frankly, a really, really important difference um, between what's called gestational surrogacy and traditional surrogacy. And the names sound very similar, but um, it, they're, they're, different in terms of where the egg is is coming from. Um, And um, traditional surrogacy um, can be accomplished through intrauterine insemination, um, theoretically even timed intercourse, um, or IVF, where the surrogate is, is providing, you know, not only the egg, but also the uterus and carrying the pregnancy um, with the intended you know, father's sperm. Um, I contrast that to gestational surrogacy, where by definition, the egg is coming from an egg donor, um, separate from the gestational carrier. Uh, for a lot of states, traditional surrogacy is is not legally allowed um, because, because of prior legal cases. But nowadays, with the legal contracts and the pre and post birth orders and the counseling that's provided for all the parties. Um, fortunately, this is, is, um, and, and the fact that the, the egg is coming from a separate woman. Fortunately, this is almost an ever event. 
Right, right. And Dr. Kaser, how do you counsel these patients about what the overall process will be like for them? You know, in in counseling male couples about about the options and about what this path to parenthood looks like, um, I think you know one of my I think helpful pieces of advice is is um, that you know from the time of initial consultation to the time of an embryo transfer, it's typically measured, you know, in, I've seen it as quick as four months. Um, and it's typically more like six to nine months or even 12 months. Um, so not only, you know, find an egg donor, create the embryos and then screen and, and identify a gestational carrier and have her undergo a number of transfer. Typically the, the rate limiting step is, is identifying, uh, a gestational carrier. Um, and so often when, when couples meet with me for the first time, um, they're wondering how best to tackle this in terms of sequence of events. And some, some come already knowing who the gestational carrier is. Um, however, most don't. Uh, and so typically the initial step would be creating the embryos, uh, you know, identifying an egg donor and creating the embryos. Um, most of the carrier agencies want the couple to have embryos already available before they start offering up matches just so they, the, the surrogate, um, you know, who, who they've, they've invested in screening, um, can, can move on to the next step as quickly as possible. Um, so, you know, I think it's important for guys to be aware of it. It does, it takes a, a bit of time to go through this process. And, um, you know, my advice to them is, there will be snags and, and hiccups and, you know, speed bumps along the way, um, but not to get too caught up in it uh, and really just to enjoy the process as best as possible because egg donation and surrogacy, I mean, these are the highest ongoing pregnancy and live birth rates that really that our field can offer. Um, and in some clinics, you know, for a euploid single embryo transfer coming from an egg donor being implanted in a gestational carrier, the live birth rates are upwards of 75, if not even 80%. So they're, you know, they're still not a hundred percent. I look forward to the day that, you know, if, if that's possible, but they, this path really should work, um, for, for most couples. Um, and if it's not the first transfer overwhelmingly, it would be the, the second transfer that would, would lead to a kid. So, you know, in counseling, um, gay guys about this is it's, you know, uh, enjoy, enjoy the process as best as possible. Um, there are, you know, it's, it ends up being what amounts to be an exercise in project management in that the actual clinical process for the men is, is providing, you know, a sperm sample and having some, some infectious disease blood work and genetic carrier testing done. So it truly can be done in a 30 minute visit. The counseling is much more involved. Um, and, the the kind of administrative work and identifying a carrier and a, an appropriate egg donor for them is, is much more involved as well. But ultimately in sticking, sticking with it and, and kind of trusting the process, um, you know, it, 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 it overwhelmingly should, should work, which is, it's, it's gratifying to see, see men come in and they like have, 
have decided that they want to be parents and see that arc happen where, um, um, you know, as opposed to infertile couples that I work with on a regular basis as well, where often there's like a sense of loss or, um, frustration or guilt or disappointment. That's, that's definitely a good point, right? It's, it's a lot more positive perhaps than for heterosexual couples who have an infertility diagnosis. I, I wanted to ask you specifically though about trans individuals, not, not so much about their options, which of course depend on what organs are there, but rather about the break in hormonal supplementation required for treatment and the importance of timing infertility preservation in relation to transitioning. Absolutely. So the hormones that are used for gender transition and gender affirmation, you know, for a trans man, for example, testosterone, um, there's not a tremendous amount of data uh, in humans, at least, about long-term use of testosterone on ovarian health and follicle health. Um, there are some some data in in mice and other animals that long-term testosterone use can lead to follicular atresia and um, you know can can also you know impact ovarian reserve. The best data about testosterone use in in humans um, you know and, and trans trans individuals um, who are going through either fertility preservation or or fertility treatment would suggest that once stopping the hormones needed, the outcomes are, are very similar to non-transgender individuals. So the effect of testosterone on the ovary appears, at least clinically, to be reversible for, for most trans men. And often in stopping the hormones, um, it can take you know anywhere from two to four months for the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis to reestablish itself and for menses to resume. And generally we recommend, you know, based on the life cycle of, of follicles and the ovary in terms of, you know, from primordial follicle on being, you know, three months plus or so. And also when, when menses are often resuming, we typically would recommend to, you know, to stop the testosterone about three months prior to undergoing um, generally IVF uh, treatment uh, as it is going to offer the highest success rates and also provide the shortest amount of time off off, um, the hormones. Um, So, you know, occasionally I've seen trans men come off of testosterone and unexpectedly their ovarian reserve has, has really changed. It's hard to know whether that is a direct impact on testosterone or, you know, kind of age-related um, natural decline in in ovarian reserve. I think the larger point for for trans individuals is that that hormone-free interval um, that would be needed to undergo fertility preservation or fertility treatment after starting gender-affirming treatment. Um, can can really lead to um, pretty significant dysphoria, and it's not uncommon for this group to have you know a significant history of mental health conditions, anxiety, depression, you know, gender dysphoria, uh, history of you know suicide attempts, 
where it's it's legitimately you know off of the hormones they're a different person and they don't don't feel right in their own skin and their kind of experience gender is not congruent with their outward appearance so often you know in in meeting with trans patients who are currently on supplemental hormones my goal in the initial discussion is to kind of better understand how they were prior to starting the hormonal treatment and help them understand that like meaningful fertility preservation might mean three or four or even five months off of supplemental testosterone and want to make sure that, you know, if they are hooked in with a multidisciplinary team, whether, you know, that's a, a mental health provider and, you know, some physician who is helping manage the the hormonal treatment um, to make sure that they feel comfortable with the individual coming off of treatment as well, because there, there are, are truly trans men who've come off treatment and um, have have had really significant recurrences of, of mental health um, conditions that otherwise w- truly went away with with testosterone. So I just want to make sure they're safe to come off the testosterone and also that they understand the timeline for doing so. Best case scenario, and and fortunately, you know, practicing in a place like San Francisco and previously in New Jersey, you know, near New York. Um, more and more um, primary care physicians and pediatric endocrinologists and mental health providers and, and frankly, community health clinics that specialize in LGBTQ plus are referring uh, individuals prior to gender transition for counseling about fertility preservation. Um, and we see more and more um, you know, young adults choosing to undergo either egg or sperm freezing um, prior to to starting treatment. And from my perspective, that that's the best case scenario is that you you can kind of lock in fertility potential um, and not have to go off hormonal treatment and any of the attendant um, kind of symptoms that come along with a kind of temporary hiatus. And. What effect do sexual orientation and identification have on insurance coverage for fertility treatment? I am specifically referring to the fact that these patients often do not meet criteria to be diagnosed with infertility. What are what are some of the challenges in in that regard? It it's a fascinating topic how insurance policies can dictate access to care and the truth is it really truly depends on who the insurance provider is. And so, you know, I see extreme examples of both, um, both very inclusive um, policy and then, frankly, homophobic and discriminatory and exclusive policies. You know, not to name names of of payers, obviously, but, you know, there are, are certain, you know, Alternative payers through large, large, um, you know, companies and more kind of tech savvy companies like Facebook and Google and Apple um, that are very, very inclusive of of the LGBTQ community, and they recognize that there's no one single path to parenthood, and and whatever the path, it's a um, is a beautiful one, and. These policies, frankly, don't specify whether, you know, if you're a single man or a male couple or 
a lesbian couple what your what your benefits look like and that's you know for my patient population that that is so tremendously valuable because you know it's 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 frankly an endorsement and acknowledgement that their companies are you know consider this a viable option to to be a parent as as a gay individual the extreme opposite of that is other major payers um that you know, you would recognize by name, um, specifically exclude gay men from from access to their fertility treatment options. So I can speak from personal experience in having gone through egg donation and surrogacy, having wonderful, wonderful fertility benefits if I were straight uh, and my wife were having difficulty conceiving or we had some medical reason to undergo egg donation or surrogacy all of our treatment would have been covered. Truly comprehensive fertility treatment from start to finish. But the fact that my partner was male or is male, um, I had access to none of those benefits and everything was was out of pocket. And then the other example in, in similar insurance companies is that for lesbian couples, often they define infertility as you know, unprotected intercourse or exposure to sperm for six to 12 months, depending on a patient's age. And so the argument for, you know, for a female couple coming who has, who has IUI benefits or IVF benefits is that even if they have IUI benefits, they can't even access their IUI benefits sometimes because that, is like under the fertility kind of policy and they, they haven't demonstrated infertility. And so they often have to pay out of pocket um, to demonstrate that they're infertile. So then they have access to their inf- infertility benefits. So it's, you know, we're, you know, I think it's a very, very important topic and I think we're headed in the right direction as a society. Um, and, and frankly, the more progressive in, insurance companies and payers that are, are seeing a larger, frankly, market share of, of, um, you know, patients going through fertility treatment recognize that, that, um, you know, the modern family in the 21st century looks different than even, you know, 20 or 30 years ago and are writing their policies and, and with much more inclusive language, there's still a lot of room to, to catch up with a lot of major um, providers uh, of insurance. And I think, you know, frankly, the, that will make inroads in, into that in um, first acknowledging that it's an issue, you know, and pointing it out that this is discriminatory because it truly in my opinion, is, is discriminatory. And there are, are legal cases that are ongoing um, about, about, you know, not personally, obviously, but um, that um, have, have been risen and um, are like are currently under, under, you know, review at courts um, where patients sue their insurance company for access to their fertility benefits um, because the language is discriminatory. And I've, you know, I've seen and read, read articles about how more and more these cases are being um, won by 
the uh, plaintiffs and you know the people that are, are are raising the issue. So I think we're making progress um, in you know in in patients having access to their fertility benefits. There's still a tremendous amount of, of work to be done, and I think you know I view my own role in this space as a physician in like not only educating you know patients and the community and other physicians about about these issues um but also advocating for patients and and frankly writing letters to insurance companies and 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 pointing out these issues and then um i i also see my role in just helping educate you know society at large of like what a family looks like in the 21st century um but but also frankly demonstrating that it's normal to you know to be a gay parent yeah yeah absolutely hopefully this podcast will will add a little bit of weight to all of that and keep pushing things in the right direction for sure i think the more we cast a, a light on that um particularly as a field i think um is, is frankly how you know the momentum changes uh in the meantime you know i'll, I'll continue to write letters and you know, to insurance companies and appeals to medical directors and so on. But in the meantime, you know, I, I think getting getting the word out and you know educating about about the issue. I think this is how um, you know it becomes more socially acceptable. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Doctor Kaser. This has been great. Thank you so so much for for taking the time to be with us and talk about this very very important issue and for sharing your your personal story as well. Truly, my pleasure, Andre. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions on all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Uh-huh.